American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my hand tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. Throw it all away. Oh, this is exciting. We got the Scottish guys. <laughs> Scottish guys. Yes, and should we start? <laughs> yeah, I guess we're ready. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Are you yeah, scared? We're good, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to another episode of American Timelines. I'm Amy, and that's Joe. And we are History for Jerks, and we are joined once again by some wonderful guests from across the pond. Yes, yeah! Scottish yeah! friends are back. <laughs> Please welcome Daniel Beaton and Nate Fordyce Wright. You'll yes. never get rid of us. We from, love it. <laughs> from uh, it's been a while. It's I think it's been about a year. Yes, yeah. so these guys are now from at least four Pratts on YouTube. Yeah. Am I saying that that's right? So. Pratts. Yeah. No, that's yeah, not your Pratts. <laughs> nice no, American Pratts. God, Lord. So you guys are. Uh, is there four of you on at least four Pratts? Yeah. So there's myself, uh, Daniel, Kieran, and John. Um, and we we were, we've done a few podcasts just under that name. That's where you'll find us. So we do a one called Nicholas Cage International Treasure, where we are watching <laughs> every single Nicholas Cage film, TV show, advert, anything he's been in. Really, we're gonna dig it up and we're gonna watch it, and we're not gonna review. The it end properly. game is to get the end game is to get us to notice him. So uh, if there's anyone connected uh, that's listening to this right now, get us to get get him to call us. All, All right. we want is Nick Cage in this little flat in Dundee just to have to sleep on the pull-out <laughs> sofa next to Daniel. Like, that's, that's all you want. That's, that's all you ask. That's yeah. everything. <laughs> we, and we, we think he's the type of, type of guy that would go for some weird shit like that. So, yeah. so we're, we're, we're hoping and praying. We just want to sleep in the same room as you, Nicholas. It's not weird. It's not weird. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just want to feel your breath on our on our necks. I just right. want to hear what your what your snore sounds like, Nick. Please. All. <laughs> all right, and today we are going to talk to talk about 1959 some more. We're going to yes. talk about June and July, and some April, and some. What was the other? Uh, December. 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 <laughs> it's a little bit of April. We're going to jump back to June and July where we are because. Because we've got to do some Scottish timelines. Yeah, when you have some Scottish guests, you have to uh, you have to bend to their will. Uh, you have to make be welcoming to the our overseas friends. That's called globalization. Scotland, Scotland is a. Also, Scotland is a mighty country, and we are the ones in charge. Yeah, they, we are, they're bullies. And oh, I forgot to tell you before we start recording, I want to tell you this that uh, there's an intern where I work right now and she's from our town here in Waxhaw and she's currently going to school at University of Glasgow. Oh Glasgow. Ah. So she's here for the summer, but she's going back there. That's uh, dead posh. So <laughs> I, I asked her if she'd be willing to go to uh, Dundee <laughs> to deliver something to you guys. Uh and she said she would. So Ooh, whatever you want. <laughs> whatever you want. <laughs> whatever you wow, want from our home. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to think about it. Just that. not the dogs. <laughs> oh, not the come dogs. On. <laughs> You name it. 
Bring uh, us some of that beer that you're that you're. Yeah, a little slurp. I should see if she can bring the little slurp little over. Slurp. I don't know if she can bring beer uh, on the plane because don't they they don't allow liquids. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, she can I'm buy it slurp. at the airport. I can give her money to buy it at the airport, maybe. Yeah. All right. So anyway, we'll figure that out. You can have it in your check. Yeah. We'll, that's just semantics. <laughs> yeah. So let's start. So we're gonna start with Daniel's. Gonna start with a birthday. We're gonna start with a birthday. So hit it, Matt Trubinigo, Tramp with the birthday theme song. And Daniel's going to take it away with an April 1959 birthday. What's the date, Daniel? Uh, so it's April 18th, 1959. I think you might like this birthday, uh, actually, Amy. Okay. Because it's the birthday of a murderer. Ooh. Mm-hmm. So, um, as we said before, Scotland bends the rules a little bit. So I've, I've bent the rules with this as well. So he was actually born in, in London. But that's how, his that's dad all right. was Scottish. His dad was Scottish, and his crimes were, uh, well, largely committed in Scotland. So that's we're okay then. So that's fine. Yeah, yeah that helps. <laughs> that works. We're we're looking at Malcolm John Webster. I've never uh, heard of him. Who his? Yeah. So his father was Alexander Robertson Webster of Kincardine and Fife, which is probably about 40, 50 miles away from where I am sitting right now. Fife. Um, Faith, yes, Faith. The kingdom uh, of Faith. So, uh, ironically, his dad was the head of the fraud squads at Metropolitan Police uh, in London, holding the rank of Detective Chief Superintendent. And Malcolm's mum was Odette Blewett, a former nurse. Okay. Now, when he was a child, he was a bit of a troublemaker. Uh, he was prone to pretending to faint. Uh, he grew up largely sheltered, and he had a bit of a penchant for uh, fires, uh, which ended in the nick- <laughs> which ended in the nickname Pyro. Oh. And he left school at fifteen man. with no qualifications. Uh, but in his adult life, he found work as a bin man, a driver, an office clerk, and a nurse. Now, a bin man. Um, in uh, your terminology, is a garbage man, right? In our terminology, a garbage man, yeah. yeah, yeah. You don't yes, have to change it. I'm just around. like for the American people, like that's what a bin. Man. It's, get, it's not. It's not a group of people who live in bins over a bin here. Man. Yeah, a bin man. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so he was a bit of a piece of shit, and in his teens, he lied about having cancer quite a lot. Oh god, uh, that's shitty. So, he hasn't done that. I mean, yeah, he's yeah. um. Later in life, when he was analysed by a clinical psychologist, um, pre- police profile has labelled him a sociopath, uh, which yeah, is not entirely... Like um, yeah, w- which is pretty fair from what I've read. Sounds about right. Uh, so when he was 30, he worked in uh, Tawam Hospital on the children's ward in Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates. Uh, but within six months, he was forced to resign following an investigation into the deaths of three children under his care. Yikes. Um, all three children had been under six years old and died of cardiac failure, which is unusual for children of that age. Yes. Ooh, yeah. um, but due to Islamic culture forbidding post-mortems and favouring quick burials, there was insufficient evidence for a police investigation. Right. Um, his former co-worker and girlfriend Beth Brown has stated that Webster's supervisors had discovered that he had been injecting himself with insulin and formed the opinion that he had killed the children with insulin injections. Oof. Oh, man. Uh, 
Yeah. So it's reputed that his father, a senior police officer, used his influence to get his son out of the country, uh, but Webster Holy denied God. these allegations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was being described in his life as a thief, a liar, and a philanderer. He had habitually <laughs> persuaded, pursued relationships with women, usually wealthy ones, and relied on them to supplement his income. Reportedly, his favourite saying was, why work hard yourself when someone could be doing it for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm actually down with that. <laughs> Other stuff, like it killing children, so but the insulin—I don't like that. But I like that part. <laughs> so, um, his sort of main crime start, um, or confirmed crime start, when he married a woman called Claire Morris, who's from Old Meldrum in Aberdeenshire, which is up north in Scotland. Hmm. On the 3rd of September 1993, uh, during the course of their marriage, he drugged her with tamazepam, which I believe is a, a muscle relaxant, if, hmm. if I'm not mistaken. And on the 27th of May 1994, he drugged Morris, she was 32, and deliberately crashed their car on the Auchenhuvie to Tarvis Road in King Goody, Aberdeenshire, and then set it on fire with her oh. in the passenger seat. Oh, jeez. Yikes. He twice informed an off-duty policeman who stopped to help that there was no one else in the car before it exploded. Hmm. Uh, he claimed that he'd uh, swerved to avoid a motorcyclist coming at him in the wrong lane and received a £200,000 life insurance payout from his wife's death. Oh, my God. Uh, £200,000. Oh, stop. Yeah, so equal that's probably to... about... <laughs> it's, no, it's about a dollar. It's only a few more. It's about a dollar? Now, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's about the same as dollars. It's just like a little bit more. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, so it's probably about 200, 235, 240, 40 grand. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he, he spent a week in that. hospital. Yeah. So after extensive testing, the hospital was satisfied that he was uninjured. Even his pulse and heartbeat were normal. Webster, however, claimed that he had been injured in the car and even wore a neck brace at the funeral. Mm. Uh, and there was uh, lots of things um, after it was after it was confirmed that he had pretty much killed her just for the life insurance. Uh, there was uh, our family basically fought to stop her married name going on her headstone. Oh yeah, you uh, yeah, you wouldn't want because that. Of just the association. He freaking murdered um, you. Yeah. So shortly after she died, um, he started a relationship with Geraldine Oakley. Um, and he kept um, she became suspicious of him as he kept asking her if a second autopsy was likely to be carried out on his first wife oh Um, that's a clue yeah Yeah. and and she testified on two occasions that she had gone to voice she had gone to voice her suspicions to consultant psychologist James Grieve but had always stopped at the last minute Um, and then a year after uh, Claire's death in 1985 when he was living in Saudi Arabia, he stuck up. He struck up a, a friendship with Brenda Grant via the phone, and he repeatedly offered her drugs, but she refused, and she considered herself lucky to be alive. Yeah. And then there was he was then married to Felicity Drum, who he attempted to kill to fraudulently claim seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars from nine insurance policies. Oh, Jesus! Nine. 
Yeah. Hey, uh, if he's taking out nine insurance policies on you, you might have a problem. You might want to get a red flag. Yes. Yeah. How did your first wife die? Uh, don't worry about it, but I'm rich now. Uh, also, can you sign these forms? please? Yeah. Nine of them, please. Mm-hmm. In triplicate. And he had a string of other relationships, including uh, a girl, a girlfriend he had who was 15, Eesh. who aborted their baby. A woman who later ended her life, and a married woman, uh, and they've all declined to be identified. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. Um, so his last relationship with a woman called Simone Barangie, whose house was searched by police after they received information that Webster had embezzled funds from an angling club. During the search, the police seized a stolen laptop, an unlicensed gun, which Be- Webster claimed was an antique. An investigation into Webster called Operation Field was launched in 2008. The police subsequently announced they were re-examining Claire Morris's death. At the same time, the New Zealand police began re-examining the second crash, which was, so he caused two car crashes to basically kill his wives. You'd think he would, you'd uh, you'd think that he would, like, realize that that's suspicious to do the same method twice. Mm-hmm. You'd spice it up a bit, you know? You know yeah. Mix the things up, yeah. Maybe a boat crash next. Yeah. Yeah, maybe mm-hmm. we should start a, a consulting podcast for murderers. Yeah. <laughs> really? like, try this to get away. <laughs> and finally, on the 19th of May 2011, after the longest ever criminal trial in Scotland with a single accused, he was convicted and found guilty by a jury of nine women and six men. Some of the verdicts delivered by the jury were unanimous and some were by majority. Uh, he was sentenced to life imprisonment on the 5th of July 2001 with a minimum sentence of 30 years. He was sub- he was consequently removed from the nursing register, you'll be glad to hear. Mm, good. Uh, so the, he's no... Yeah. Um, from being he a reportedly nurse. told inmates that he expects to die in prison and has been described by one inmate as being really boring. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is a hilarious detail. Is he still alive? Um, still in prison? Yeah, he's still alive, and he's wow. he's been reported to have been attacked by other inmates. Um, he refused to shower for months on end, and ultimately hired a convicted child molester to protect him. Oh my oh. god! You know you're desperate. Yeah. So when yeah. 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 Right. Uh, so yeah, there's been a few appeals throughout the years, but each one has been rejected, and he remains in prison to this day. Okay. Uh, so that's that is the story of Malcolm Webster, and you can actually learn more about it. And there was a, a program that was, I believe, on STV or ITV, made a couple of years ago called The Widower, um, that was about his crimes. Malcolm hmm. Webster, The Widower. And he was played by. A, yeah, he's played by a famous uh, actor over here called Rhys Shearsmith. It's uh, very, very good from what I've seen of it. So oh, if, cool. All right. Uh, if you want to learn more about Malcolm and probably hear in a more interesting way than I have just recounted there. No, very good <laughs> job. That was very riveting. Oh, no, that was good. Yeah, that was really good. So, yeah, there you go. Maybe that's a birthday that you didn't totally hate him. <laughs> no, yeah, Amy, as long as it's a murderer, as somebody's murdering well, people. It, had, like it, it. it was interesting. Yeah. So very that's what makes one. it different. And Could so, have done with more diverse murders, though. Yeah, more diverse murders. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think, Aim, this is good that we went back to April because I we forgot something at the end of May okay. last time. And so I think since yours is the end of June, yeah, we'll just stop in June and then jump to uh, Nathan's. That way we fit every everything in without 
going on and on because I got a lot in June. Okay. Um, but first, at the end of May, uh, one thing we forgot in the last episode, singer Billie Holiday, uh, super famous singer, uh, was Fantastic taken. singer. Yeah, mm-hmm. she was taken to Metropolitan Hospital in New York with liver and heart disease, uh, where she was like on her deathbed, but she was arrested for drug possession as she lay dying. Her hospital oh, room, sick. yeah, her hospital room was raided by police, and she remained under police guard until her death in, in July. Uh, by early yeah, 19... 1950- see, the, Amer- the American Christ- criminal justice system works so good. Yeah. If oh my black. god, this is yeah, exactly. This is like the sort of the start on the war on drugs and this kind of shit. Like they handcuffed mm. her to her hospital bed. Uh, That's fucking terrible. Man. Yeah. It's awful. By early 59, she was diagnosed with cirrhosis of the liver. Although she had initially stopped drinking on her doctor's orders, it was not long before she relapsed. And by May of 59, mm. she had lost 20 pounds. Her manager, Joe Glazer, jazz critic, Leonard Feather, photojournalist, Alan Morrison, and the singer's own friends all tried in vain to persuade her to go to the hospital and find on May 31st, she did. And she was taken to the hospital uh, for both liver and heart disease. Mm. Uh, but she was, she had been pursued for months by the Bureau of Narcotics, uh, mainly for her history of drug use. Uh, leave, leave her alone. She, she, sings one of my, she sings one of my favorite songs. Which, which one? Which one? Uh, strange, strange Fruit. Strange Fruit. Yeah. Oh. And so they yeah. actually, they actually, the officer's, there was some controversy of of people claiming they people were upset by that song and that's why they were the FBI was following her and stuff. But later, yeah, as other they're, reports, they're that, getting they're getting called out on lynching black people. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And so there was. It there probably is was. About, yeah. Of, of that being part of the reason they're following her and looking at her. They went after Martin Luther King. Yep, too. Probably is. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably is. So. uh and then the narcotics police went to her hospital room claiming they found heroin in her bedroom. Uh, and they that definitely wasn't planted. Yeah, they arrested, handcuffed to her bed, placed under police guard. Um, so, yeah, that's shitty. Was that was that kind of similar to Marilyn Monroe when she died? It was like they there were drugs found there that probably were. <laughs> now, there. Marilyn, I think, was on drugs. I mean, they found. Yeah, they found empty pill bottles. Right. Yeah, and she was really troubled, Marilyn was. Yeah. Right? I mean, to be that much of a beauty icon and then, you know. She had horrible upbringing and everything. Yeah, horrible right. childhood. Then used her like crazy. And mm-hmm. um, that, that's got to be hard. I mean, to be, and for Billie Holiday, to be a person of color, a woman of color with that much talent, mm-hmm. uh, and then to have that song, like you said, calling them out, sort of. Um, that's that's all kind of it. Um mm-hmm. And then in more light and more uh, uplifting news, on June 1st, 1959, which was a Monday, four days after her flight into space, Miss Abel, a rhesus monkey, died of a reaction to anesthesia during surgery to remove the electrodes that they installed in her body to send her to space. Yeah, what? uplifting. I mean, yeah, kind of, yeah uplifting, <laughs> literally. Yeah, but... really. <laughs> yeah. Amy gets mad every time I mention these animals they sent to space. But... I know. These poor things are probably terrified. Yeah. They don't understand mm-hmm. what the hell's like, happening. Yeah, they barely understand. It's like, all hell. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Filled with the, I, think the, I, think yeah. the, I think the first thing that was sent into space was a Russian dog called Laika who died. Yeah. Yeah, we died talked in, about in that. Space. It's horrible, man. Yeah, it is. We talked about it. It had no, not not even enough room to like turn around. Uh 
and you know it was terrifying and ugh, whatever but it died because of like heat like it they think it made it to the orbit but then it was like the insulation or something messed up and it like like sweltered you know like burned to death sort of ugh, like Did it get a little helmet 150 degree it had a helmet i think it was like 150 degrees in there or something. God. Freaking assholes, yeah. Good little thing, man. Um, and then on June 2nd, 1959, according to ebrary.net, 12 people were killed and 15 injured in a town called, I think it's Scoilkill Haven, Pennsylvania. Uh, in the ex- mm. It was an explosion of a propane <laughs> Yeah, that truck. sounds right. <laughs> well, I'll print. I'll spell it for you. S C H U Y L K I L L. Yeah, Scoil. 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 Same as Dutch. Scoil kill. It's probably Scoil. Not enough vowels in there. Yeah, yeah. But a propane truck exploded, caught fire 30 minutes after allegedly being rammed from behind. Uh, and many of the victims had been watching from a distance as it exploded. The tanker let loose and flames swept along the road like a ball of fire, killing people, milling about. A trooper tra- directing traffic said uh, State Police Sergeant Melvin Clouser reported uh, that a tractor trailer ran the rear of the gas truck, setting it on fire. Uh, it was half half an hour after the crash that it blew up. Uh that the firemen were fighting the flames and then it exploded, I guess. So it like caught on fire. They're putting it out and then it exploded. Mot- mm-hmm. Motorists who climbed out of their cars as he was holding up the early morning traffic and just the idle curious were watching distances from 100 to 300 feet up the highway. Some of them, a, a number of the firefighters, wait, some of them and a number of firefighters were killed. At least 15 others were injured, five seriously. Um, Frank Tui, Pottsville, uh, well, Frank Tui, a Pottsville Republican reporter, said parts of bodies were strewn over the highway. His partner, photographer Vince Nee, said the site was a, was sickening as anything he'd seen in military service. The flame shot 150 feet in the air from the gas truck, and there was a terrific explosion. Parts of a stone wall outside a historic church were blown forward. Groups of spectators about 200 to 250 feet away from the fire were mowed down. The tank of the truck landed in a a field 220 yards away. Um, Yeah, they said... uh, From the explosion. From the explosion, yeah. Yeah, and there was a school bus that was like right in front of... You guys, truck. you guys should be like um, yards. What is that in? Um... Yeah. <laughs> Only Americans do that. I know. Of course, everybody it's else fine. explained to us. Yeah. Anyway, the the school bus got away. Uh, uh, when he saw the crash, he took off and got away. Uh, but Ron Kramer, the school bus driver, was quoted to say that heads, legs, and bodies were scattered everywhere. I saw six bodies lying in one field along the highway. Uh, so that was an awful, horrible event. Yes. Yeah. Pretty gross, yeah. right? Body Pleasant parts everywhere. Afternoon so far. What's up next? Yes. June was great. Just wonderful. Uh, June 3rd, it was a Wednesday, and Amy's going to be upset about this, but the U.S. attempted to launch four mice into orbit damn it. Uh, aboard the satellite Discover, Discoverer 3, but the mission failed when the rockets fired the vehicle downward rather than horizontally. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> That's kind of a big fuck up. And the satellite burned up on reentry. Uh, oh, yeah. So 
Yeah. Why even send mice? What are they going to do? Just run about a bit. Very uh, <laughs> <laughs> intelligent mice. They're going to do some research. <laughs> Oh You're gonna solve a maze and get some moon cheese. I, oh. I don't understand. <laughs> Word was that they trained one of the mice to take photos no, of Mars. Tiny, tiny no, little Polaroid did. camera. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Here's a here's a better thing. A little bit better. June fourth, nineteen fifty nine, was a Thursday, and the one hundred ninetieth and final Three Stooges film short, Sappy Bullfighters, was released to theaters nationwide. Mm. The last three stooges uh, were in the in the movie. They're vaudeville entertainers who trek to Mexico to perform their burlesque bullfight with Joe was the brave manador and Moe and Larry dressed in a bull costume. Uh, unfortunately, their gig is canceled. I've seen a, when they I've seen a yeah. little bit. Oh, have I've you seen, seen that one? I've seen a little bit of the old, I've seen yeah. a little bit of the old stooges. Like the, the old stooges. stooges bit. So, they, they did. A, I believe they did a reboot with Will Sasso. Yeah. Is. Uh... This is the big Bolden. So Mo, Larry, and Curly. <laughs> Mo, Larry, and Curly were the Well, actually, Mo, Larry, and Shemp were the original ones. They were? Yeah, Shemp was the original brother. And then... Uh, I thought Curly was before Shemp. No, Curly was after Shemp, but he was the most famous. So when yeah. Curly got there, it really took off. I know way too much about the Stooges. So my great uncle, his father was uh, in a group called the Bowery Boys, which was like a, a 30s film comedy group. And so he was friends with Shemp. Uh, which I thought was really cool. So, Bowery Boys sounds like a gang. The Bowery Boys, yeah, the Bowery Boys. They, they were a gang that would flip their leather collars up and click <laughs> down the street. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> well, they were like, it was like forties guys. You know, they're like, hey, see, we're New York. See, yeah, I got a switchblade. See, so there were three Stooges. Hey, <laughs> there were the Bowery Boys, the East Side Kids, and the Dead End Kids were their three names. But if you look up Hunts Hall, that was my great uncle's father. Uh, so oh, it's right. old, wow. old school. It's been in a bunch of movies. Uh, but anyway, that's Three Stooges. So everybody loves Three Stooges. All right. <laughs> and then July sixth, nineteen fifty nine, was a Saturday, and the first ever satellite communication was made when a radio message from U.S. President Dwight D. Eisenhower was bounced off the moon to Canadian Prime Minister John Diefenbaker, who was dedicated dedicating the new Prince Albert Radio Laboratory. So we can now bounce signals off of the moon. You said Prince Albert. (laughs) Prince Albert. Prince Albert Radio Lab. Yeah, it was a radio laboratory dedicated to Prince Alberts. Yeah, Yeah. everywhere. Prince Alberts everywhere. I have a friend that wears a a kilt. Uh, We've got a Prince. We don't need to. Come on. And he should. One St. Patty's Day, he showed everybody in the bar as Prince Albert. It was great. His kilt. That's fantastic. He lifted up his kilt. Yeah. Oh, that's Gruff from the Gruff and Loud show. Who uh, you yeah. guys are, yeah, are going to be? Ta- I know who you're talking about, and I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not entirely. I'm not entirely fucking surprised. No. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're gonna connect to you guys at some point. Okay. Now this is a great one. June eighth, nineteen fifty nine. Uh, are you guys familiar with Liberace? Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Ah, I don't know why. See, these young kids in Scotland are way, way. <laughs> they they, they made a they made a film about it with Michael Douglas and Matt Damon. So, oh God! Uh, so oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, he sued. Yes, you... uh, candelabra behind the candelabra, or something about candelabra. Are you aware of that? No, oh. I don't know. Well, on June eighth of nineteen fifty nine, he sued the Daily uh, the Daily Mirror and columnist William Connor for libel. After he published an article strongly hinting that Liberace was homosexual. 
Mm. <laughs> no. no. No shit. A confirmed bachelor. <laughs> yeah. Liberace. Yeah. <laughs> he, he was awarded 8,000 pounds in damages, which I think is equal to 800 billion. No, I have no idea what 8,000 pounds. It's uh, <laughs> a lot of money. It's more than Musk. Oh. Uh, yeah. So one of the f- best quotes about this. So he won. He won because they said no. There's no proof that Liberace's gay. Uh, he described Liberace as the summit of sex, the pinnacle of masculine, feminine, and neuter. Everything Ooh. that he, she, and it can ever want. A deadly, winking, sniggering, snuggling, chromium-plated, scent-impregnated, luminous, quivering, giggling, fruit-flavored, mincing, ice-covered heap of mother love. Wait a minute. The judge said that? No, that's... that's... <laughs> no, no, the guy who wrote the article. That's oh, a glowing review. That. that sounds great. Thank God. That sounds, that sounds like a Ric Flair introduction. It does, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. Woo, baby. <laughs> Rooting, tooting, limo-driving, cow- door slamming yeah uh but he but liberace sent a telegram that read what you said hurt me very much and i cried all the way to the bank <laughs> and that's <laughs> proving, proving that he's not gay clearly clearly not gay uh yes that's, that's funny. well and i guess in particular what he really was upset about is that i think there was a thought that um overseas in the uk there uh you you guys weren't aware that calling somebody fruit flavored or fruity meant someone was gay which is kind of what is a was a like an american term calling I mean, somebody it was fruity. A, it was also illegal at that time right and I, probably yeah. The 60s, the UK, it was like, illegal, yeah yeah so you know understand so that's part of it too yeah, yes you, absolutely understandable come like people didn't come out very often no like, so but no absolutely. it's crazy that he won though i think that's that's a funny thing and so he did reiterate after he won uh, he repeated the catchphrase to reporters. I cried all the way to the bank because he won that money and mm-hmm. uh, to the bank. So that was kind of funny. That I can't believe he get that it. get that paper, Liberace. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it was funny to me that anybody ever like didn't think he was gay. You know, so it's like with yeah, George, was, George well, Michael. I think I think a, a, a probably a large fact of why he never came out would probably one due to the fact that well it was frowned upon but also it probably would have alienated the majority of his audience considering mm. it was mums and older women that were like oh it's, it's an attractive man playing a piano yeah they were hot for him and women have a thing for effeminate men like prince women love prince oh yeah mm-hmm. he's very effeminate mm-hmm. so he, he's not really Howie. effeminate he just in drag, kind of. Yeah, <laughs> sexy, mm-hmm. sexy guy. Just yeah, very loud. Spans the the genders. Yeah, he really genders. exudes. He just exudes sex, mm-hmm. like sexual androgynous. Androgynous, that's a, that's yeah, a, sex for everybody, probably. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um. Okay, I got a little bit more in June. We'll get to Amy's in a second. Uh, on June eighth, nineteen fifty nine, it was a Monday. An experiment with missile mail. Uh, proved successful, if not practical. So I, I mentioned this on a couple episodes ago. They were experimenting by delivering mail via missile <laughs> to, to be faster, like just For shooting a missile sake. to a different town. Uh, <laughs> An explosive missile? <laughs> yeah, I guess, at 10, 10 a.m., the USS Barbaro launched a Regulus 1 rocket containing 3,000 letters from a point 100 miles offshore. It's not a missile. It's a rocket. A rocket. It says mi- they call it missile mail. 
oh. uh, offshore from Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, the wheeled missile was guided to the Naval Air Station at Mayport, Florida. A parachute deployed, and it landed 22 minutes after firing. Postmaster General that was Arthur my e- question. Is it, is it, yeah. is it, is it going to land, or is it going to be like one of those planes that have a sign at the end of it, like real estate agents use? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure. Or if it's, I wonder why they stopped it. But Postmaster General Arthur E. Summerfield predicted that deliveries of mail by missile would become a regular practice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Here's your divorce papers. Also, yeah. sorry about your front wall. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we blew up. That <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and then on June 14th, which was a Sunday, beachgoers in La Jolla, California, watched 33-year-old Robert Pamperin uh, as he was attacked and devoured by a 20-foot great white shark. Oh my god! While skin diving 50 yards from shore. No trace of pampering was ever found. At first, I thought you meant skinny dipping. Uh, skin diving? Yeah, I thought you meant skinny dipping at first when I, I heard know what that. that is. And I Maybe. Thought, oh. Is that what skin diving is? Do you know what skinny is? dipping is? Do you guys no. know what's that's no. that's swimming in the nude? Oh, I thought, yeah, yeah. I don't know what skin diving is. I, 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 that's what he said, but I thought he yeah. meant skinny dipping. I, I did first. say skin diving, but is that the same thing? No, I don't think. Diving into a pool of it, flesh. It, no wonder he got eaten by a shark. Maybe that. Swimming beneath the surface of the water at a considerable depth, depth without a portable dr- breathing device. Mm. So he didn't have, yeah, but he was like, okay, okay. Going, you know. uh, but the shark swallowed him whole. Snorkel. They think he swallowed him whole because they never found any parts of his body anywhere. Man. Jesus. So, yeah. Stay away from the water. And then, uh, do you guys know, are you guys familiar with the first Superman, George Reeves? Yeah. Yes. And, and are you familiar with the, the Superman curse? curse? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So everybody who plays Superman ends up tragically dying, I guess. I don't know if that's still true because Dean Cain. It's yet to happen to Henry Cavill. Which yeah, Henry Cavill. I, yeah, there's a couple I, have been fine. He's my man crush. So oh, is he? That doesn't happen. I have, okay. I have so much love for that man. Yeah. I hear, is, now, is he supposed to play Wolverine in the new X-Men? Is, is that a word? I heard there was rumors of that a while back. I don't know if that's still true. I know that he's he was leaving the he was leaving the Witcher for something. Oh, he's yeah. making a Warhammer 40k TV series, which really? is real nerdy. And you guys, yeah, play, do you guys he's, play Warhammer? He's, like us. he's just a he's a massive nerd. I, I, I make I Warhammer. I've never once, played it. <laughs> and I've paint. I've painted. I've painted them. Painted a few yeah, minutes. He's, a, he's a massive. He's He's a massive dweeb like us, which <laughs> I just love how just, uh, I, I, don't, like... I don't know if anyone's gonna see this on the on the on the video of this, but Daniel is slowly descending more and more into darkness. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's getting darker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just the shadowy figure. Just the shadowy <laughs> yeah, figure. It's getting, it, it's getting <laughs> fucking dark now. Yeah. <laughs> Is it dangerous where you live? Are you? Is there? Is there prone to crime? <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> not. No. Although there have there there have been a string of car theft, so I'd like to see someone try and steal this. Steal. Yeah, the with car you while I'm still in it. Yeah, yeah really. <laughs> uh, well, back to June sixteenth, nineteen fifty nine. It was a Tuesday, and actor George Reeves, who played uh, the title role in the Adventures of Superman, was found dead in his Beverly Hills home from a single gunshot wound to his forehead. Mm. Uh, because but because the gun was wiped clean of fingerprints, mm. there were no powder burns on his hand. Uh, the conclusion that he had killed himself had been disputed. Mm. Oh. Uh, so well, well uh, the forehead is a strange. If you're going to shoot yourself, it's a strange place to go for. 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that you can, like, would you, yeah, why would you, yeah. So he died in his home in Benedict Canyon in, Holly, in the Hollywood Hills. And you can actually, uh, uh, Wikipedia has the address and like, you can Google it, look in the Google Maps. It's like right in the Hollywood Hills where uh, it looks like in GTA uh, 5, there's a, a lot of places you go. Anyway, uh, but he, it happened between 1.30 and 2 a.m. on June 16th, according to the L.A. Police Department report. Um, now, his he was engaged to society playgirl Leonora Lemon, who uh, attributed Reeves' alleged suicide to depression caused by his failed career and inability to find more work. Uh, the official she story, hundred percent, yeah, <laughs> given by her to the police, placed her in the living room with party guests at the time of the shooting. But hearsay statements from Fred Crane, Reeves' friend and colleague from Gone with the Wind, put Lemon either inside or in direct proximity to Reeves' bedroom. <gasps> According to Crane, who was not present, Bill Bliss had told Millicent Trent after the shot rang out while Bliss was having a drink that Leonore Lemon came downstairs and said, tell them I was down here. Tell them I was down here. Uh, a number of oh, God. yeah, a number of questionable physical findings were reported by investigators and others. Uh, again, no fingerprints on the gun, no gunpowder on his hands. Um and then, but but others have said that uh, gunshot residue testing was not routinely performed in 1959, so maybe they didn't check. Uh, but the bullet that killed Reeves was recovered from the bedroom ceiling, and the spent shell casing was found under his body. Two additional bullets were discovered embedded in the bedroom floor. All three bullets had been fired from the weapon found at his feet, though all witnesses agree they had only heard one gunshot. So how many bullets? Three bullets, but they only heard... Uh, you don't. One when you kill yourself, you don't fire it three times. <laughs> a miss. A miss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But this was... is just like it's like golf. He's just taking practice shots. Oh my god. Maybe it took. Maybe it took three. Like because he's Superman, it just like oh, that's a thought. to yeah. get through the skull. Oh my god. Maybe. There was there was no sign of force entry or physical evidence that a second person was in the room. But despite these unanswered questions, his death was officially ruled a suicide based on witness statements, physical evidence at the scene, and the autopsy report. Uh, but Reeves' mother thought the ruling was premature and uh, retained attorney Jerry Geisler to uh, reinvestigate the case as a possible homicide. But the findings of a second autopsy conducted at his request were the same as the first, except they found a series of bruises of unknown origin about the head and body, which mm. I think that's the most suspicious thing. Yeah. Oh, Hello. Three bullets, mm. three gun gunshots, and he's all bruised. Mm. Um Yep, she did Ms. it. She, Lemon. The party. she said she she said she was going to powder her nose when she was actually going to murder her fiance. <laughs> yeah, went a party? Like you'll murder somebody at a party? <laughs> yeah. Uh, after the fact, the fact that she made such a big thing about the fact that he was suffering depression that she didn't, oh, he definitely killed himself. Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, actors very, very heartfelt there. Alan Ladd and Gig Young were reportedly skeptical skeptical of the official determination. And his uh, Reeves friend Rory Calhoun told a reporter, "No one in Hollywood believed the suicide story." In their book Hollywood Kryptonite, Sam Kashner and Nancy Schoenberger make a case for the involvement of MGM vice president and fixer Eddie Mannix. See, Reeves had been having an affair with his wife Tony Mannix. And others suggested that Eddie Mannix 
rumored to have mafia ties or that, that he was killed. Yeah, that makes more sense. That makes sense. Like he was yeah. Am I right in saying that a fixer is someone that can like sort of connects like actors to studios or is... Yeah, like Harvey Keitel in uh Pulp Fiction is a fixer, right? Mm. Oh oh that oh that kind of fixer. Okay. Is it? I don't know. Those I think it's a crime of... thing. I think it's definitely a crime thing. Like a fixer. fixer. It's like somebody if who there's a body that needs like being it. disposed That's of. right. Yeah. Mm. Or maybe that's a cleaner. They that's call them cleaner, yeah. Yeah, I think was it a person who makes arrangements for other people, especially of an illicit or devious kind. So like <gasps> like a hitman type of thing. Oh, okay. Or it's also a substance <laughs> used for fixing a photographic image. But I don't think that's what they mean. That's not what they mean. No. <clears throat> I thought it said I thought it said pornographic image at first, and then I said, right. "Let's hope not." If you were sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're almost to Amy. Uh, on June seventeenth, nineteen fifty-nine, a jury in London awarded Liberace twenty-two thousand four hundred dollars in his libel suit against the London Daily Daily Mirror. We already That's, talked about that. Yeah, I know, but this is when he. This is the got, fluff I'm talking about. Yeah, your fluff. Uh, and June seventeenth. <laughs> this is not fluff. June seventeenth. Uh. Was a Saturday. Well, this one says it was a yeah, it was a oh, June twenty seventh. I'm sorry, it was a Saturday. Voters in Hawaii went to the polls on the question of whether to become the fiftieth state of the U.S. or not. And the result was one hundred thirty two thousand nine hundred thirty eight in favor and seven thousand eight hundred fifty four not. Only one of the two hundred forty precincts went against statehood, with voters on the island of Nuahu seventy to eighteen against. I wonder what they had against it. Well, I think that was a sovereign nation. There was a queen, I think, of Hawaii, right? I don't know. And I know I, nothing, John. Yeah, so. they should. They shouldn't. They they definitely shouldn't have joined. Shouldn't have joined. Yeah. <laughs> from hearing know. what from from hearing hearing from like native people to Hawaii, yeah, uh, like their house prices have be, since they've got loads of rich white people moving there. Yep, yeah, that's uh, right. Going there like the, the house prices, like. She was talking about her grand's house that was uh she, they bought for like five thousand, and it's now worth like one point seven million. Yeah, uh, no doubt. Yeah, that's crazy. That's, that, that's crazy. Is it kind of like Bermuda then, where it's like like a haven for rich and? Oh yeah, even worse probably. Right. Yeah, and everything's probably commercialized and crazy and touristy. Yeah, yeah. touristy. Um, well, and that brings us to Amy has an event. On June 28th, 1959. I just have a little thing called the Alabama Torso Murders to talk about today. Ugh, Alabama Torso Whoa, Murders. Torso well, Murders. Keep in mind. Gruesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is going to be gruesome. But almost as gruesome. This is going to happen the same day that in Meldrum, Georgia, 17 people were burned to death while swimming. What? They were swimming oh. in the o- Ogagee River. Yeah. The beach area was beneath um... a 30-foot railroad trestle. And as a train moved over the bridge, two tanker cars exploded, sending a blanket of flames onto a crowd of 175 people swimming below. They oh all burned to death. Wow. God. Isn't that awful? It's so neat, tell us about um... your torso thing <laughs> at the same time. All right, I will. Um, on the afternoon of June 28th, a torso was discovered near an abandoned house near a- Italia, Alabama. Uh-huh. The following day, another torso was found about 11 miles away in Whitney Junction. And then over the next few days, there would be reports of body parts scattered across three counties. If you just find a Ooh. torso on, on the street, 
you, how long does you it think take it's a mannequin at first like yeah. everybody does well, how do you even re- like when how long would it take you to realize it's a torso even like because you're not looking for a torso no i know so yeah. authorities couldn't identify the murder victims and with no id there would be no leads in the case for weeks so they called the remains mr x and mr y um and then an artist created sketches from what remained of the victims faces and the drawings were printed in alabama newspapers and then a tip led investigators to a farm where they met the woman behind one of the grisliest crimes in Alabama history. Oh. Um, so hold on a second. One one thousand. The suspense here, Amy. Yeah, yeah, that's what she's trying to do. Just keep us on the edge of our seats. Tension. This is. Hold on. Where did sources come from? You want me to cut what all this out? Maybe, yeah, maybe these guys could. Maybe Nathan can play a song really quick, and like uh, while we wait. This is the <laughs> latest version. Daniel, can you beatbox? (laughs) (laughs) Can either one of you guys yodel? All right. I'll do some Hank Williams if you want. So then, um, the July first comes around, and um, they held hold gravesite services for the two victims, and they were buried in Alabama City Cemetery. Uh, it would be two weeks before police were able to identify the remains. Um, did they piece together the body? Or did they, <laughs> did they piece together? Yeah. Well, they, <laughs> they took photos of the heads and then they gave it to a sketch artist who recreate the who recreated that. And then they printed that in newspapers. And then this construction worker sees it in the newspaper and he's like, hey, that looks just like these two guys who haven't shown up for like the last two weeks. Oh. So he calls right. the police and then it turns out that these two guys is 55 year old Emmett Harper and his 48 year old brother Lee. And they were killed about midnight on June 28th. So savagely that neither men could be identified. They were military veterans who were hired by the construction company to help with building the roads. And they mm. both also had records for DUI. I don't know why that's important, but I, I'm, shocking. That's, shocking. I'm that's surprised nuts. DUI existed then. It's like, terrible. didn't everybody drink and drive, <laughs> drink and drive in the fifties? Yeah. So yeah, they, you just, you, <laughs> whenever thing. you see things in the fifties, everyone's got whiskey in the everybody, office. Everyone just drunk. Yeah, that's right. Time. Well, there's a video. What's that video on? Is that is a TikTok that we saw where people are complaining about the regulations of drinking and driving? I should have the right to drink a six pack of beer on my way home from work. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. <laughs> okay, so the oh, so America, America. They, that's America. Yeah. yeah, they find out that these Harper brothers lived in this farm, a, a trailer on a farm nearby. So the police go to the farm right away, and they note that the farm and the people that are working the farm, it's kind of this primitive backward feeling about the place in alabama Mm. what so when police (laughs) so they come in early in the morning and uh the main house unpainted has a real long porch on the porch they meet 71 year old martin hyatt sitting in a swing and his 31 year old daughter viola okay when they're both sitting on a swing together yeah (laughs) just swinging drinking country time lemonade yep and then so the police ask him if they know where the harpers were Martin explained they had gone to visit family, but police knew this was a lie because they had already called their family members. Mm. Um, so within hours, 30 investigators come to the farm to search the trailer and the surrounding grounds. And Viola kept asking them what they're looking for. Um, 
police disputed that they had left town because of all their belong because all these belongings were left behind. So they're yeah. like, no, they Take didn't leave with town. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so she didn't respond when they said that. She just walked away. Um, during the search, police found the door to the trailer had been shot and the trailer was all trashed. There were blood stains all around the trailer and a bloodied axe was found. Oh. A hat with blood and hair God. was found in the trunk of the brother's car. Ooh. Authorities right away arrest all three of Martin, his wife, Jesse, and the daughter of Viola. Oh, okay. They learned that Viola had one at one time dated the men, one of the men. And so they questioned her for like six hours. And at one point she said she saw her neighbor go in to the brother's trailer. But they found out that wasn't true. So they ask her again, does she know anything? So finally she breaks down and tells him she did it. She killed. She killed him. She did. She was indicted 31 years old on two counts of murder by a Calhoun County grand jury. She was scheduled to go on trial September 28th. She was described as a sturdy and obese woman with long black hair and angry. (laughs) She was described as angry, too. So is sturdy and obese different than like what floppy and obese like it's like i don't know i guess she wouldn't <laughs> blow over in a hurricane like, uh, <laughs> right would she blow over in a hurricane that's not what i'm asking all right police got roots. <laughs> yeah police quoted miss hyatt would she as cause saying, significant damage if she ran into a door <laughs> but that's a good measure how big is she so police quoted miss hyatt as saying she shot the brothers in the face with her daddy's 12 gauge shotgun and then chopped them up because they had abused her mm-hmm. She said she chopped up the men with her daddy's double bit axe and deposited their remains through all three counties, throwing a leg out here and an arm there and rolling out the faceless torsos in different places. Faceless torsos. So let's go back a little bit. Virginia Violet Hyatt was born February 3rd, 1929. Okay. Her mother died when she was very young, and that left her and her father, Martin Hyatt, alone. So he hooks up with this jesse wheeler and marries her she was in her mid-30s so she was a lot younger than him okay so he gets her because he needs somebody to take care of a viola but from the beginning viola hated jesse um they lived on the 40 acres and had a mule at white plains at a community about 15 miles northeast of aniston corn and cotton plus a hardy garden and gatherings of pigs and chickens fed the family and prospered the farm so jesse this the mother-in-law the stepmother she soon realized that she would have her hands full with Viola, that she was used to getting her way. She insisted on it every time. She was known to be mean and violent. Mm. She was said to stab bullfrogs as they tried to escape. Uh, Poor bullfrogs. Oh, Torturing animals. Yeah, the animal torture. She had very deep emotional disturbances. Despite that, she enjoyed Southern gospel music and frequented local area churches. Oh, that's nice. Women of God. Right. Exactly. Exactly. The Hyatts were isolated on that farm. So after school, Viola never socialized with other kids. She was always right by her dad's side. He taught her to shoot when she was just seven years old. She would shoot robins out of trees and possums in the yard. And she also hated the hogs on the farm. At 13, she asked her father when he planned to butcher the hogs because she wanted to watch. Um, At the time of her arrest, 30 year old Violet was said to be sleeping in her father's room. Martin said that Viola just liked taking care of people. So there was some kind of weird vibe mm-hmm. with the dad and the daughter. Yeah. The Harper brothers were tenants at the Hyatt farm. Mm-hmm. The men who had placed a small trailer near the main house kept to themselves and drank a lot. Lee and Violet dated, but the exact nature of their relationship was never clear. The men had moved there in 1956. Um, 
Martin, the dad, had made a deal with these men that if they paid a little more in rent, Viola would cook and clean and run errands for them. And then this also meant that she would be an, available for sex with them whenever they wanted it. So it, it was kind of unknown how much say Viola had in this arrangement. Yeah. Um, she was involved with both of them in 1959. When she confessed, she wrote a 10-page letter and that told police she had been intimate with both men. But that one night, everything went wrong and they crossed a line. She said Lee Harper held a knife to her throat and forced her into a sex act while her brother watched. Oh, she also claimed that the men would get drunk and abuse her father oh, as well. She said she shot them because she couldn't take the abuse anymore. Then later, she claimed her story wasn't true. She explained that a little after midnight on Sunday, she got her dad's shotgun and walked out to the trailer and knocked. Then when Lee opened the door, he quickly closed the door when he saw the shotgun. And then she shot into the door, that opened it, then shot him in the face. Emmett was also there and, and then shot in the face. So then Viola walks back into the Hyatt's house to replace the shotgun and then moves the car close to the trailer door, tries to lift the men, but realizes she can't lift them. So she remembers how to butcher the hogs. So uh, she goes, gets the axe, butchers the remains, and then dumps the torsos and limbs into the trunk of the car and headed out of out the whiskey trail, named that because it was a favorite trail for bootleggers. Mm. She threw the remains out of the car, then went home, freshened up, and went to church with her dad. Uh, Late that afternoon, she went back to the trailer to clean up the murder scene. So then they the police go to investigate, and they discover that she'd been calling the brother's uh, other places of employment and telling the boss that they were visiting their mother who was in the hospital mm. and that they were not back yet. And that cast suspicion on her. So, oh. so they let Martin and Jesse release, they release Martin and Jesse. They don't think they have anything to do with it. Um, they make Viola go back to the farm show them what happened, where, and where she threw the bodies out and stuff. So then she, she goes to trial and the defense has a hard time because she won't, say why she did it and she won't ever again say that it, they abused her and all that stuff happened she she doesn't ever say that again huh. so they can't defend her so they try to do a plea of insanity um hmm. she goes for a couple months into a mental hospital and then when she comes back out they put her on trial and they give her about 10 years um and then 10 um, years yeah about 10 years is all but they had that seems like a very short amount <laughs> well because she she did a guilty plea for both murders in exchange for that she would get life instead of the electric chair but she got was eligible for parole after 10 years so right. basically it's 10 years okay um she, yeah. and she was like a model inmate in prison everybody liked her she then they so they paroled her after like seven years so um <laughs> Her stepmother, Jessie, who had always been terrified of Viola, had a massive heart attack and died on the day Viola was released from prison, which is weird. Wow. After her prison release and before her death, Viola lived a quiet life in a trailer park. She was physically a physically large lady who sat on her porch and read her Bible. Her neighbors described her as a friendly person who was quiet and stayed to herself. Viola's mm. pastor said she had prayed for forgiveness while watching an evangelist on TV and that she loved Jesus. The real story is something that Viola took to her grave when she died at a hospital in Jacksonville in June of 2000. And that's the story of the Alabama Torso Slayer. Y'all. nuts. So mad. don't, don't yeah. you just have to be insane to like rip Chuck up a body up. and throw the parts out? Like I would think you can't no like a sane person and, and, and not feel so guilty that you have to turn yourself in. If you right? just the act of doing that would have to make you insane. Like just yeah. to do 
two bodies mm-hmm. ripping their torsos up and throwing them legs and arms and knees. You know, that's insane. I just can't imagine sawing somebody's head off. Like, that's the worst part to me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, bits it's just chop, chopping the whole thing <laughs> up into little bits. And she's like, but it's the fact that she was like, oh, this is this is going to be tough to carry. So easy transportation. I'll just cut them up and you, you know, right. I can't put them all in. It's logical. It's like it's like it's like when you chop up a credit card, you don't put them all in the same bin. You put them no, into different no, bins. Just and like, them. Oh, you're supposed to do yeah. that? Yeah, <laughs> put it in the same bin. You know, I, do is, I I like put the first. I throw it out in the trash and then wait for them to pick it up and then I put the second half in the trash the next week. I'm not really smart, but you're very attractive. So, <laughs> well, thank you. You might be you might you might be getting scammed soon, Amy. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> Oopsie. So let's. Why don't we move on to Nathan has something yeah. cool that happened at the end of '59. So we're gonna just take a pin right here at the end of june and jump to the end because we have a scott is it a scottish oh, story yeah all the way to the chilly december and you're an the... expert in this topic right because no, you, and I, well i did you some... did a report at uni yeah as you guys I, say. I did some interviews with uh bob richmond and andrew jeffrey who uh one of them owns uh, or is a part of the tamara uh charity um, and one of them is a local Scottish historian. I did some archival research on this to do a sound project for a, a, a uni course, which, shameless plug, is available on Creative Dundee under the Creative Practice Research uh, bit. Um, it, I'm it in it. Starred You're Daniel in it? Here. Daniel's in it. Um, I'm in it. It's a bit odd, but you can listen to that if you want. For tell, tell me again how to find it. So it's on Creative Dundee. Yeah. Um, and it is under uh oh, the great. the original features tab in uh what's the sixth month? June, July, one of them. Uh of last year. But yeah, it's <laughs> about the Mona lifeboat disaster of nineteen fifty-nine. So on the evening of the seventh of December nineteen fifty-nine, a harsh southeasterly storm rolled into the east coast of Scotland, causing dangerous conditions on the waters surrounding Northeast Fife and the Angus area. The North Car, a light ship built by A and J Inglis in nineteen thirty-two, was stationed in the waters surrounding Fife Ness in order to warn ships of the jagged rocks looming around the coastline. Uh, the North Car was to be caught in this storm with the lives of the crew threatened by the tumultuous waves. At around 2 a.m. on the 8th of December, the North Car's main anchor snapped under the strain of the storm. Now, the North Car is an engineless vessel. Its hull taken up by crew's quarters, kitchens, and common areas, the captain's quarters, and the giant room housing the vessel's compressor equipment necessary to help support the Foghorn's astounding 10-mile hoot. To this end, the North Car would have been unable to save itself, requiring tugboats to bring it to and from their operational position. They had but one course of action to buy time for the rescue operation, to drop their supporting anchor, radio for help, and wait. Mm. After deploying this weaker secondary anchor, the lightship began to drift towards the rocks of Fife Ness, the supporting anchor dragging along the seafloor. A distress signal went out to the nearby lifeboat station in Anstruther Fife. However, the lifeboat teams there and in our broth Angus were unable to launch their rescue ships due to the conditions at sea. 
And so the responsibility fell upon the crew of the Mona Watson class lifeboat and its crew stationed in Broughty Ferry, which is around four miles from the city of Dundee, uh, which is where I'm telling the story now. I'll give you the names of the Mona's crew uh, who set out in the early hours of the 8th of December 1959. So we had John Greaves Sr., age 56, Alexander Gall, 56, George Smith, 53, James Ferrier, 43, David Anderson, 42, George Watson, 38, Ronald Grant, 28, and John Greave Jr., age 22. So a father and son were on this boat. Mm. The reason that the Mona was able to launch was given to Broughty Ferry's location just within the mouth of the Tay River estuary. The tide here was sheltered from the worst of the storm. And so at 3.13 a.m., the Mona and her crew launched and began battling their way over the sandbar line, uh, which lined the mouth of the Tay River. This battle was hard fought. Given the prevailing southeasterly gales, combined with the ebb of the Tay River moving out towards the North Sea, the Mona had tremendous difficulty in breaching the sandbar, with a sharp breaking sea harrying their attempts. A radio message sent to Fife Ness from the Mona at this time read, We're just hanging on. An hour and 35 minutes later, at 4.48 a.m., the North Car sent up a maroon, a red flare, and the Mona radioed Fife Ness to confirm they had seen it, adding that they were just clear of the bar. This would mm. be the last thing heard from the Mona and her crew. The crew member atop the North Car's light tower following the Mona's navigation lights, which bobbed above and behind waves until 5.39 a.m., at which point they disappeared. Meanwhile, aboard the North Car, the secondary anchor had held a long enough for a team of Sycamore helicopters to perform one of the first air-sea rescue missions and get the crew safely back to dry land. A picture of the crew enjoying a fair few well-earned pints was hung in a Brossy Ferry pub, but this was much to the outrage of many living in the town. As they drank, the North Car began to drift out into the North Sea and was found a while later halfway to Denmark, apparently quite content. Later in the morning of December 8th, 1959, a man named Bill Fodd was walking his dog on a beach near to Carnoustie, which is a town lying between Brotty Ferry and Arbroath on the Angus coast, and spotted a blinking red light just in the water, out in the water. Investigating, he soon discovered the body of Johnny Grieve Jr., the Mona's mechanic and son of John Grieve Sr., lying in the sand. At the same time, Davy Mearns, once rescued by the Mona lifeboat, was on duty in Carnoustie and spotted the Mona on the beach. Leaving a hurried note on the desk of the Coast Guard station, he cycled to Broughty Ferry to alert the Mona's home station before returning to the scene. As much as I can gather from the recording of the interview that I did uh, last year. <laughs> Davy Mearns arrived at the beach at around the same time as the Sycamore helicopters arrived to investigate and hopefully rescue anyone on board. As the tide briefly rolled out, Davy Mearns leaped aboard the Mona to find the starboard railing smashed, three engine room ventilators torn from the deck, the mast collapsed, and a body laying against the railing. Opening the fore hatch and shouting down, Davy then descended into the hull to find five more bodies within, one being Johnny Grief Sr., halfway in the engine room hatch, another being the young Ronnie Grant, still laying against the wheel, which turned with the tide, pushing and pulling against the rudder. The body of George Watson, whose pullover was found on deck, was never recovered. No one knows exactly how the under crew went down. One theory lies in the evidence that the engine room hatch was open and the body of John Grief Sr. found halfway within. 
It was apparently common practice that the engine room was never to be opened on a Watson-class lifeboat once a voyage was underway, unless in the case of dire emergency. This, along with the missing ventilators on deck, some of which were stuffed shut with the kit of George Watson, point to a malfunction of the engine. Also, given that the mast had collapsed, it's thought that once the Mona had cleared the bar, it had attempted to turn and tow the line of the sea. If this manoeuvre had been attempted with a faulty engine producing less power, it is possible that the mast broke and rolled the lifeboat over, causing the deaths of, the, of its crew. Again, this is conjecture based on what was found on the morning of December 8th, and no one can know the exact events. After, a routine court, after routine court sessions with the widowed family members of the crew, members of the North Car crew, and workers of the Brotty Ferry Life Station, the Mona was burned on a beach near Edinburgh, as it was found to be unfair to put a new crew on a disaster boat. There was an outpouring of support from the Brotty Ferry community, including community funds for the bereaved families and a clamour of volunteers to replace the lost crew. The North Car continued its service until the late 1970s, at which point it was put on display in Fife, its moorings here causing considerable damage to the hull. Destined for the scrapyard, the North Car was purchased by the Taymara charity. It is now moored in the Victoria docks at Dundee City Quay, although it is now closed to the public due to the heavy damage it has received over the years. However, a team of extremely dedicated individuals now work tirelessly to restore much of the North Car's equipment, they are, need an, uh, they are in need of much greater funding, as well as a dry dock, in order to fully restore Scotland's last known lightship. That is the story of the Mona lifeboat disaster. Ooh, that was good. I bet uh, that's funny. If, if, if you guys ever come to Dundee, we can, we can take you to go and see it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I bet that's haunted as hell. Yeah, yeah was, we've got a, we've got a couple. There's a couple of ships in Dundee. That being one of them. There's also the Unicorn, which is yeah. a warship that was uh, used in the used in the First World War and had been used hundreds of years previously. And there's also a ship called the Discovery, which was the first mm -hmm. ship to be built for scientific research, which was um, <laughs> and it got stuck in Antarctica for three years oh, wow. from 1901 yeah. until uh, 1902 until 1904 when oh, it was yeah. rescued uh, by the Terra Nova which was the ship that took the uh, Captain Scott to the South Pole where he died tried to reach the South Pole because he was beaten by uh, the Norwegian Raoul Amundsen oh wow uh, yeah, so yeah, Dundee's got a big, a big uh, connection to to ships and shipbuilding. So were, the industry were, before. were most of the crew on that lifeboat from the area? From Broughty Ferry, they would have been. Yeah, um, almost all of them. Uh, uh, it was it was it was common practice back then for lifeboat crews to be voted in by the rest of the crew, mm. um, and so you usually knew people. And there was like so the if you just let me get up the the names again. Uh, Ronald Grant, who's 28 year old, he was the coxswain, so he would call out uh, the sort of the orders and stuff. Um, and it was his very first call, uh, his first time mm. being out on the waves, and uh, everyone was very staunchly supporting him. Um, he had a very experienced crew behind him, uh, and a lot of people were quite quick to blame it on him. Uh, but people mm. stood up for him and mm. said, No, he had this experienced crew behind him, they trusted him. Um, uh, but yeah. It was, it was a big thing. I did some archival research during this at the Dundee City Archives, which is great. They let people in to, if you want to research stuff, um, and you sort of go through the court proceedings of these like um, 
of of the the following uh, investigation um and is there's because it's very dry the way it's written out there's still a lot of emotion to be drawn from it it's really interesting stuff through mm. all these court proceedings and that yes cool. i would imagine their families probably have memorials all the time every there's yeah no apparently a lot of them still are around as far as i heard andrew jeffrey was was telling me knew a few of the sort of descendants of them um the widow of uh the greaves um the the father and son who died died mm. quite soon after mm. um their uh her husband and son died apparently so oh. yeah tragic yeah the good job the sea is dangerous it we doesn't want us in it last week yeah. again yeah yeah, yeah. billionaire mm-hmm. idiots oh yeah, god yeah. yeah we're talking about that yeah christ <laughs> yeah. um lord uh, have mercy yeah all right well well yeah we this probably ended in yeah. june yeah we'll end here and then we'll uh we'll jump in in july because yeah. i in next month if you want to listen to the next episode we have um i have the story of the three christs two uh Two, three crazy guys who all claim to be Jesus. Yes. Uh, Love it. And uh, uh, yes. some psychologists moved them all in together to, to see what would happen. So just a preview of this. <laughs> oh, I awesome. can't wait. I can't Tune wait. For that. So we will end here, though. But thank you, Daniel. Thank you uh, thanks for, for having us. Thank you for having us again. Yeah. Fourth thanks time. for staying up late into the wee hours uh in Scotland. It's only six PM here. Yeah, I gotta go make dinner. And now yeah, Amy's gotta make dinner because I don't know how to cook. But uh thank you guys for listening. So check out learn how to cook, damn it. Take some of the strain <laughs> off of your dear suffering wife. Yeah, I know. Learn how to cook. Check out at least four prats on YouTube. Prots, prots, is that how you say it? At least four prots. I say Prats. <laughs> Check out creativedundee.com. I'm looking on there. I don't know exactly how to find it. So do you just Google search on there? Creative uh, Dundee. Yeah. You go into um uh search projects, maybe. I think. Uh it's called Muck Ross, was what I did. And there are a bunch of other stuff from people on my course, very talented writers and creators. Yeah, Creative Dundee. Well. Look outside the box, people. Listen to something new. Uh go to Scotland and read some things. Uh yeah. You got any music coming out, Nate? Uh, I released an album recently called Hashino Coffee, which is available on Spotify and Amazon Music and stuff that's that's there to listen to. Nathan Fordyce Wright. That's yes. the one. Yeah. Uh, so what kind of coffee is it? Hashino. H-O-S-H-I-N-O Coffee. Okay. Sweet. Yeah. Check that out. Uh, check. Oh, there it is. I, oops, damn, I keep hitting the wrong button. Uh, <laughs> Hoshino <laughs> Coffee is an album available. Yeah, it's everywhere. I just found it on Bandcamp. Support artists, you know, make it into indie artists doing stuff cool. Scottish people. Daniel, you got anything creative coming out besides the four prats? Uh really that's that that's really all I have time time for at the moment. Still uh trying to get back into my writing, writing a few TV shows, uh okay. getting that on the go. Um, I'm I'm a way to start working on a sitcom about uh, working in a kitchen. Uh, okay, I, I'm a chef. Yeah, and yeah. some of the funny shit that goes on in kitchens needs to be out there. What's the last uh, thing you made as the... a chef? What's the last dish you made? Oh, great! Uh, He's been so... working on the asparagus recently, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I've now moved on. It's a uh, we're in the middle of Scottish courgette season. 
and so I'm, I'm working with zucchinis to, to you Americans. Ah, oh. uh, so I'm, I'm doing so I'm doing a little zucchini dish at the moment. It's got Yum. some got some che- got some cherry tomatoes, some oregano. Okay. Ooh, uh, very, very summery flavors. Sla- slather that in cheese, and I'm on board. Yeah. There <laughs> is cheese gravy. that has whipped goat curds on that. Yeah, Ooh. it's 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 some good some good shit. <laughs> yeah, this guy doesn't I'm mess right. around. Anyway, thank you for listening. It's time to get out of here, Chuck Berry. Yeah, time to get out of Chuck Berry and check out the Scottish friends, everything they're doing. And thanks for listening, everybody. You guys want to say goodbye? Bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. 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 Greatest band of all time by their music.